interbrain synchrony. Students whose brains are more synchronized, physically synchronized when they're learning, actually perform better in class. You can discriminate the students that are struggling from those that aren't. Those solving complex collective intelligence problems are much more likely to find solutions if their brains are literally, not figuratively, in sync. And so, all right, same thing. If we actively went in with electrical stimulation in this case and forced the brains to be in sync, would people be better at trusting one another and coming up with maximizing the collective intelligence? Welcome to the Girl Tech Talk podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Tang. This podcast tells the stories of female and non-binary identifying CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs, and leaders who took unconventional pathways that cultivated their strengths and talents towards innovation, global change, and their unique version of success. Here at Girl Tech Boss, we believe exposure is the key to innovation. So by sharing the learnings, challenges, mindsets, and successes that make up the unique journeys of women in diverse fields of STEM, we will inspire youth to seek their own success journey and make their mark on the world. Hello and welcome to the Girl Tech Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm so excited to be joined with Vivian Ming, who received her PhD in psychology and theoretical neuroscience at Carnegie Mellon University. Throughout her career, she has founded six startups and been chief scientist at two others. Currently, she's the founder and executive chair of Soko's Labs, an incubator to bring new and meaningful ideas to solve world problems. She works on a multitude of side projects, including designing AI systems to treat her son's diabetes, predicting manic episodes in bipolar sufferers, and reuniting orphan refugees with extended family members, while being a mother of two kids. She was recognized as one of 10 women to watch in tech by Inc. Magazine and one of the BBC's 100 Women 2017. Vivian, thank you so much for being here. I'm beyond excited to have you here with me, and I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself further, add any details that I missed, and then we'll move on to some questions. Any details that you missed, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, The only detail is that I'm a very weird person, but I suppose the world could use a few more weirdos and mad scientists uh, to go explore the unknown every now and then. Yeah, I definitely find you as a person so interesting so which I'm so excited to have you here with me today. Well I am enthusiastic to find out what the secret questions you should know that you sent me some ahead of time but I actually find it to be much more fun to be surprised by them so let's hear the first. Sounds good so the story behind how you kind of developed your passion and drive to improve the lives of people is one that really resonated with me. So can you share a bit more about your story and how has shaped your work that you do today? Yeah, you know, I, as you very kindly noted at the top, I have a lot of very fancy, smancy things associated with, let's say, the latter half of my life um, and a lot of good fortune. Uh, And in fact, I was born with a lot of good fortune, too. And I kind of used it all up. 
a little quickly. I was supposed to do all these amazing and special things. And the more I tried to be that person, the worse everything got until I finally gave up and ended up homeless. Uh, and we can go into whatever level of detail seems interesting to you around that. But the heart of it is that when at one moment in your life, you don't know where your next meal is coming from. I mean, you don't know to the level that it's scary. And then another moment of your life, you never have to worry about anything money-wise ever again. It changes the way you see what you should do with that money or that time. Uh, so for me, it's really elucidated this idea that, you know, there's something genuinely amazing inside at least the potential of everyone. I'm a hard numbers scientist. I'm not foolish enough to think that I can magically wave a wand and change everyone's life. But that doesn't mean you don't do anything. So when I look at the things I've had the chance to do in the latter part of my life, invent AIs for diabetes and bipolar, um, uh, develop new companies, develop life-saving technologies, write books, have a couple of kids and, and uh, a wife that I love. Like these are amazing things. And I actually think there's nothing particularly special about me in terms of being able to do this. Uh, so wouldn't it be an even more amazing place if everyone else had the same chance. And so this has really driven my academic research, uh, looking at neuroprosthetics for everything from deafness to mental health, to traumatic brain injury, to nowadays Alzheimer's, to uh, the companies I founded in education, in reducing bias in workforce, and now a couple of companies in healthcare and neurotechnologies. And then what I spend most of my time doing nowadays, which is people bring me challenging problems that can range from Dr. Ming, my daughter has 500 seizures a day, please save her life, to Dr. Ming, the UN doesn't know what to do about global AI policy, and you're the least worst person we could ask. And I have the chance to at least occasionally say, well, let's, let's try then. Uh, in fact, if I think my team and I can make a meaningful difference, then I'll pay for everything. And if we actually invent anything, we just give it away. It's, it's the best job in the entire world. Cost me enormous amount of money to have this job, but what an amazing thing to, to have a chance to maybe make a change in someone's life, even if it was just one person, that, boy, I could have used when I was a kid. Uh, and that's kind of the, the summary of why I do what I do. And occasionally there's a company there just because an idea might be able to pay for itself. Occasionally it's science. Occasionally it's philanthropy. But to me, it's all the same thing. People have value. And we have an incredibly hard time seeing that value in people that are different than us. So um, what if we just every now and then gave it a shot 
and I, and I don't mean we're just nice to each other, but actually made a meaningful sacrifice in our lives to try and help someone that you don't even know, um, just in the belief that that might actually come all the way back around to you. Yeah, that's so inspiring. Um, I feel like as someone who grew up uh, in a privileged family, um, I really never like felt the need to worry about um, things that a lot of people around the world are worrying about. But even like in the past year, I've dealt with mental health issues and that really opened my eyes to so many new things and new problems in the world. And I think definitely like your story about how you use your struggles and kind of change that perspective to help others is so inspiring. So thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate that. And also, I don't, I, no one needs to be the villain in their own life story. I, I had a pretty privileged uh, childhood growing up myself. Um, they didn't change how low things got when they got their worst. And there might be a couple of villains out there in the world. Uh, we could certainly probably pretty easily name a couple of them. But that's just not interesting to me. Um, uh, I'm, I'm so much more interesting in what people could do and how you can make a meaningful difference in helping them do it rather than fighting and fussing over the specifics. I mean, we can all, you know, in our hearts and in our head, have our own opinions about everyone we come across. I certainly am an opinionated person, but when it comes to my work, um, I, I guess the heart of it is um, everyone, everyone might have some amazing thing. In fact, a better way of thinking of it is everyone does. Because then you have to own that. If someone does and you don't do anything, then at least a little bit, that's you. And then it really motivates me. And in my case, I can think of this. I mean, it's not just pat myself on the back. I can think of the reverse of this, which is the 10 years where I pretty much wrecked my life. What if I'd started the work I do today, 10 years earlier? Um, people might be alive. I mean, literally people that have passed away might be alive. And the, what was in between that and, um, and, and where we are today is that I couldn't figure myself out. And that's a hard thing to own. There's a, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi and fantasy nerd, not so much comic books, but I'm going to make a comic book reference here. One of the best Superman comics ever is actually not Superman. Like a lot of these, there's, everybody has a version of Superman. This one I think is called the Samaritan and he's from Astro City. So if you're a super nerd, you know what I'm talking about. And, um, and it just details his life what it means to be someone who can hear everyone in the whole world crying out for help. And what it means when you say, you know what, I'm gonna take a break. Not right now. And if you've lived a life where you've cried out for help, you're just not interested in taking breaks. Yeah, definitely. I guess I'm not a huge nerd because I've never heard of that story, but thank you for sharing it. That is a deep cut. Uh, that's a, but it is a, a comic book classic. If you've never read Astro City and you like comics at all, go check it out. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, just looking into more of your research, you've already touched on some of the projects you've worked on, but um, you've worked on so many different projects in neuroprosthetics and different areas in cognitive neuroscience. What is the project that excites you the most and that you're most excited about that could potentially change the lives of so many people or have already? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, certain projects are easy to feel proud about. Uh, the diabetes one, as I've told many times to people, was all about my son who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so that's an easy thing to think, wow, I, you know, to, to stay on the comic book theme, I got to be the superhero for my own child. I got to invent a superpower that just simply did not exist before. Uh, of the things I'm working on right now, I mean, as you can imagine, I get asked to work on a lot of projects. And also I and my team come up with a lot of ideas internally of things to work on. So we can't work on that many at the same time. So there's always some hard choices there. And that means anything I am working on, I really believe that. Um, you know, right now we're measuring job creation in real time by every female entrepreneur in North America, every LGBTQ startup founder. Like, wouldn't it be amazing for everyone to know that, um, that their neighbors that might be a little different than them are building a better world that includes them as well. You know, that someone like me, a lot weird and a little different, invented a, a system to treat diabetes and, and gave it away and, and that that helps people now. And you don't have to agree with every decision I make about my life to appreciate that it took someone a little bit different to do that. And so we get to measure that now at scale, real time. In fact, we want to take it all around the whole world. We're expanding to look at uh, different racial and ethnic groups around the world. Uh, so we call it the Inclusion Impact Index, measuring actual job creation, patent creation, um, economic activity generated by everybody, even if you don't look like Hollywood's idea of what a nerd tycoon is. Um, but, you know, in terms of real tangible stuff, uh, I'm on the board of a company called Opticeutics and I'm a PI on, on a project. We're developing technologies, um, neurotechnologies to treat Alzheimer's with collateral benefits for dementia and major depression and, and, and other benefits. And, you know, being part of a project like that where you know, I'll be honest of my startup philosophies, even if we're not the company that crosses the finish line, we will have helped move that entire game forward. Uh, and I think we will be one of those companies, but over the last 10 years, Alzheimer's diagnosis and major dementia diagnoses have gone up significantly, which in a funny way is a positive thing, which is to say, if we live long enough, all of us are going to experience this. It's a problem everyone in a funny sense should want to have, to have made it that long, but no one should suffer. So what if those last five years of your life, the difference that we're talking about is you get to be you versus having lost yourself. 
you get to live that full five years as richly as you lived, hopefully the preceding 95. And working on a project like that is huge. That, you know, a, a former postdoc is the founder of that company is huge. That, you know, we had the chance to develop something um, truly new, but also had the chance to stand on the shoulders of other amazing people that had also made amazing discoveries. All of that, recognizing you're a part of something rather than a superhero. I know I use the superhero metaphor, but the truth is that isn't how science and invention works. It is slow and painful. And the, the definition of it is that you're wandering in the darkness. And most of the time, what you are finding is failure, but you have to find that. That's, you know, right? That's, it's like playing Minesweeper in a sense. You, you've got to go out and explore those places uh, where there is no mind so that you can find them. And that's a pretty fundamental part of it. And, and it's just nerdy fun being a part of learning something for the very first time that no one, no human being has ever known before. And then a completely different kind of feeling to actually then build it, bring it into the world. So those are two projects uh, amongst many. You know, I always like writing projects, uh, although I will admit, I'm one of those people that uh, follows the um, famous statement, I love having written. I do not enjoy the writing process. Uh, it is painful. I am in some ways a bit of a perfectionist and you can get away with being a perfectionist in algorithms and equations because to some degree, there's right answers. There, there are often better answers and it's a lot more creative than people um, actually appreciate, but you can still get to the moment where you get an answer and it's done. There's never perfection in writing. It is always at what point can I actually hold my nose and deal with the shame of someone reading this? And sometimes it's, it's might actually be genuinely good, but I can't see that. So, but I love the chance of telling a story and, and sharing a story. It's a very different way to talk about science instead of, you know, writing a traditional scientific paper in which you detail the complexities of your methodology and why it's justified, all of which should happen, is to be able to actually tell the story of getting there. And, and amazingly enough, like I just said about innovation itself, I, I was not a terrible storyteller as an undergrad doing my honors thesis work and then my early years as a grad student. But this guy uh, named Ramskar came to interview for faculty job at Carnegie Mellon. He ended up taking the job at Stanford. That's, I loved being at Carnegie Mellon, but that's its number one flaw is you have to compete with Stanford and MIT for talent. And it, it's a tough competition. But he came in and instead of saying, so, you know, I, I was analyzing this data and I ran this linear model. He instead said, so I was sitting on a plane and I was reading over this fellow's uh, shoulder about an article about baseball. And it talked about how someone had flied out to center field and I thought, well, that's strange. The past tense of, flew, of, of flies flew, not flied, but 
And it inspired, he told the story about how he was inspired to run an experiment. And then he told the story of the experiment and the results. And I thought everything about that, in fact, not only was inclusive of the audience, but it actually said more about the science as well. It, it grounded it because a single scientific paper or even a single scientific finding, I'll use a literary metaphor. It's like a single clue for Sherlock Holmes, right? It's, it's a tiny fragment. What you're looking for are the clues that across all of them, all of the papers and all of the research, and maybe even your life experience, you put all those clues together and it tells the secret story. And your job as a scientist is to discover that story, not to discover the finding or to get a lot of citations for your paper, even though it's good professionally. Your job is to tell that story that explains the science to everybody. And he really sort of triggered that in me. Don't just be funny, tell a good story to your audience, but tell the story that is science and it serves everyone. And so that's been a big part when I say I enjoy writing is finding those stories. The inclusion index and impact index has a story, a hidden story. I'm just the one that gets up on stage and gets to tell it. And so does the phasic light gamma therapy for Alzheimer's. And so does treating my son's diabetes and predicting manic episodes and bipolar sufferers and reuniting orphan refugees with extended family members only to then check out, chicken out and give up. And that's, that's a hard story to tell. A story of how you could have truly made a difference but you got scared and didn't carry through with it. And the story's even more powerful because I'm honest about it, honest with myself and honest with an audience. So I enjoy the storytelling too. That's something, the fact that I got, what was it? Monday night, I got to hang out with Prince Constantine of the Netherlands uh, over dinner and tell him and selected uh, visitors to the Dutch consulate in San Francisco about some of the challenges that technology faces in the world going forward. Uh, and yet how it, all of those challenges make it all the more important that we actually do something meaningful. I get to tell stories in some exceptional contexts, whether it's billionaires or princes or secretaries general. And, uh, you know, that's pretty important to me as well. Yeah, that's super cool. I definitely can relate to just like being lost in research papers and not really understanding where they connect. And just like stories are so much more engaging and definitely can really like expand the science community. So many more people who may be interest interested, which I'm so glad you are here with us today to kind of tell your story and inspire um, some of our audience as well. It's a pleasure. Uh, you know, just today, I'm uh, working on a, a new project, um, another one I'm proud of, but I won't belabor the point. And I wanted to know, how do I measure cognitive decline in early adulthood it might be indicative of something more serious later. And how do I measure it without ever asking you anything? In a funny sense, my job 
out in the wild, outside the lab, is how do you measure immeasurable things? And so this morning, I read 50 papers on uh, biomarkers, epigenetic biomarkers of Alzheimer's, of cognitive decline, personality models, and how those associate with it. How do you measure differences in people's gait, in their driving ability, and the complexity of their language use? And it seems daunting, and it seems like I'm I'm saying you know fairly unsubtly, oh what a genius! But really, you know, I just have had a few decades here of learning how to approach a problem. And for me, running through those papers is like reading Agatha Christie. You know, I, I'm, I got all these clues and I'm putting them together and I'm gonna who done it this problem. I'm going to figure out that it is high neuroticism and low conscientiousness with relatively low levels of accelerometer data combined with changes in language complexity over a period of N years. That's what I'm looking for, but here's super important in some people, but not others. And I know there's no question being asked here, but one of the super important things across all of my work is everybody's different. And, you know, when we work on a project like this, it's, it's super cool in those initial stages, finding those, oh my goodness, I can take this and I can do that. And I can, I can put all these pieces together and solve the crime, if you will. But also to recognize that this is only gonna be true for some people and other people, it's gonna be a different combination of clues. And in all likelihood, if this is the clues from a, a current piece of research, then it's going to be clues that apply to people, you know, bluntly like you and I, like you and me, that the, the classic weirds might be taking it too far nowadays, but that highly educated um, university group of people that, you know, in a sense, to people that a chance to go to an elite university and have relatively privileged early years in their lives, picked out of any place in the world, probably have more in common than they do with people just down the street from them uh, that don't have those qualities. And so a lot of this research is based on that. So then then my next job is, all right, now I've solved the crime of what do the clues say about how to predict Alzheimer's? But now I got to recognize that it's only doing it for 10% of the global population. Now we've got a bigger, a metacron. How do we do the same thing metaphorically, if you will, analogically, but with people that don't share the, the background that you and I share? Recognizing that, for example, uh, conscientiousness as measured in a traditional American school system might look wildly different. Like that same hidden quality of conscientiousness might look very different in a different culture or a different economic context, a different level of uncertainty in someone's life. You know, we look a lot at things like resilience, another construct which is very predictive of long-term life outcomes. 
and that's, again, it's like a hidden quality about someone. But what, what makes someone resilient is that they push through hardship and come find some success at the other side, to put it shortly. But actually different people, one person might do it by screaming bloody murder. They're just, oh my goodness, when I'm programming, I have written so many lines of code in my life and I've hate every single line of it. I am a hacky scientist coder, but I've written the first lines of code of every one of my companies. Uh, and then I inflict it on some poor real engineer that has to turn it into something decent. But I, I scream, I shout at my computer, I shout at myself. And if we were doing this interview in the same way that I code, so many F-bombs, so many unpublishable words uh, would have been spoken by now already. In some ways, that's how I push through that kind of frustration. And other people, they get quiet. They become still. They find a little inner peace. And behaviorally, then, it looks totally different. But in fact, inside, it's the same thing. But a lot of the work in science used to understand people tends to assume one size fits all. And obviously, that size has a deep history in American and European scientific research. But, you know, even if we generalize a little bit outside of that, even within a given region, if I were to go to Israel or Singapore or Kenya or South Africa or anywhere in the world, even there locally, people will be different. And often in uniquely local terms, caste differences in India create genuinely different interrelationships between people you just do not see anywhere else. And those are things, there's a part of when I'm building my story, when I'm discovering the story of all of these projects, that is part of what's beautiful about it, about what's hard about it, about why people so often fail, to be honest. Yeah, um, just going more into like the diversity of people, there are so many problems in this world that haven't been able to scale across the world and impact the people who are in the most vulnerable states. So how do you approach those kind of problems where there really isn't a one-size-fits-all and you have to go between different populations? And how do you approach that? Gosh, I have for a long time planned on writing a book just about this. And I even have the title, which comes from a broader statement. There are only ever messy human problems and they only ever have messy human solutions. And if you're not careful, comfortable with them being messy, then you should probably step aside. And, uh, you know, a sort of corollary of that is if you've got this one simple solution that fixes everything, then the only thing I know is that you do not. So one of the starting points is nobody comes to me first with a problem. Uh, if they're coming to me, it is probably because nothing else worked. If it's a medical problem, you really shouldn't come to me. I'm not an endocrinologist or neurologist or any other kind of medical doctor. So if, if people, as they often do, come to me, then it's because nothing else helped. And if I think we can make that difference, then my starting assumption is all of our assumptions about this problem are wrong. In fact, let's go with inclusion itself. 
for years, I have been doing a thing which is common. It, it even has a phrase. I've been making the business case for inclusion. Even one of those projects I talked about earlier, the Inclusion Impact Index, is in some sense the business case for inclusion. And by the way, it is a totally, I mean, it is so clearly a true a thing and, and a powerful argument, of course. And yet year after year, I have to keep making the same argument. I'm an advisory board for Credit Suisse. We publish a paper showing that just adding a single woman to your board of directors increases return to shareholders by 3%. And, and you can break it up. This is true in Africa. It's true globally. It's true in, in East Asia. You can split it however you want to. It's true. Three or more women increases return to shareholder by 5%. And yet it is still a struggle getting people not to sort of nod their head and say, yeah, sure, but to actually change practice. So in fact, it was just over the last two years during the lockdown where I thought there's something else going on. If everyone can nod, everyone can read the same research literature that I do and the same economics literature that I do, and granting that there are a non-trivial number of people that can do the nodding and the reading and still in their heart don't actually believe any of it. But even in places that do, problems often persist and persist significantly. So for the last two years, I have been doing a research program in the neuroscience of trust. What actually goes on in our brain when we meet someone who's different than us? And obviously by which I mean a stranger in all cases, but when you meet a stranger who's very much like you, in appearance, in uh, you know, uh, accent, all these sorts of things, sure. But it turns out in smell, in intestinal flora and fauna, cognitive similarity, even though we're not immediately cued as to those similarities. In all of those cases, I'm, for example, just behaviorally, much more likely to strike up a fast friendship with someone who's more similar to me, what's known as homophily. So we know this happens, but we're all rational beings, right? Where we don't make errors, especially if I'm a high-flying investor or a you know, major manager at a company, I would never sabotage my own economic interests by not recognizing the value in another person. But it turns out that's not how our brains work. And again, our brains are very different. Some people are much more heterophilic. They're much more embracing of difference than others. But nobody's brain sees a completely different person than them and experiences the same activations of circuitry and internal neural rewards that they get when they first see someone that's just like them. And so it's been you know, in a funny sense, I should have started here, but it's been a bit of a revelation over the last two years to understand, wow, not only do our brains respond entirely different to people that are progressively more different than us, but the very same circuits that I use to do my job, for example, that I use to decide who to hire or how to make my investment. Three different people came in and pitched an amazing startup ideas to me. 
and and they're probably all equally good and there's uncertainty in all of them. Well, I am so much more likely to invest one in someone who's like me and because of cultural bias uh, in the United States, someone who's white male and straight. So those two things put together really end up affecting my decisions. But can't I be rational in those moments? Well, the evidence seems to suggest that in fact, I literally can't. That the very same cognitive resources and emotional resources I am recruiting to make that decision overlaps so much with the resources I'm deploying to trust someone who's different than me. That in some sense, I can never perfectly do both at the same time. And I think what's most important is that's not the end of the story. It turns out there are things we can do to build that trust. It turns out there are things we can do to step away from allowing that conflict to decide, make our decisions for us. But even just recognizing that we're human, that we're imperfect. I'm neither a villain for not always getting it right, but nor am I to be let off the hook for making mistakes that I'm aware of, that I could make an effort to change. So, uh, you know, it's been fascinating. And in fact, I'm writing up a whole big piece on this. And, you know, it ties into so many things. Uh, I also have a new piece on political polarization that I'm working on and another one on innovation. And just being able to explore these things in super nerdy ways, like the political polarization stuff, is using dynamical models and looking at the evolutionary history of dynamical models in social graphs. Needless to say, that's gonna make sense to seven people. But within that absurd complexity, but the right way to think about the problem, are deep insights about how we should respond to these sorts of problems and what would actually make a difference. My number one assumption, whenever a problem comes to me, is we don't understand it. And when I joined uh, the board of a group exploring political polarization, that is where I decided to start. Uh, And then I lucked out. Proceedings the National Academy of Science had a whole special issue just on ecological models of political polarization, computation models of political polarization which again, most people would find the dullest reading imaginable. But to me, it's the secret story. It's finding it and then figuring out what does this mean for making a change? And also understanding again, that people are different. And you know, that one of the things that comes out of the political polarization, but it also refers to research by the famous um, Phillips and Bardo at Stanford and, and others is someone could be a terrible person. I mean, a villainous person in one context and in another context, they're a good friend and a neighbor. And that can genuinely be the same person. I think we all want to not be someone else's villain. So how do we make it easy for us to find our best selves. And yeah, I guess that's, again, just a revisit of what drives me and how I think hard about making space for people 
I don't need everyone to understand gender transition just because that is part of my experience. All I need them to do is offer a little bit of the dignity that they would offer any human being. And then maybe a thank you for inventing something that helped their life. Yeah, I, I gave a talk in Kuala Lumpur um, many years ago. I was invited by the biggest bank uh, in Southeast Asia. And I did a little bit of work with the bank and then they asked if I would do a public talk. And I said, of course, and I'll give a talk about artificial intelligence. And I gave out and I gave this talk. And, you know, it's been a while for me to think that, all right, someday there's gonna be some jerk at a talk that, you know, is gonna heckle me either because of gender transition or just because they don't agree with what I have to say or what have you. And so, all right, I'm a grown up, I can take that. But amazingly, it's never happened. Nowhere in the United States, nowhere around the world. But okay, here I am giving a talk in a Muslim majority country. And then I get out in the audience. It's, it's all headscarves and long beards. And, you know, I'm a little wary. We've, we've been trained in America to have a certain reaction to someone that looks like that. And whether that's admirable thing or not, it doesn't change what happens inside when, you know, the villain of every cheesy 80s movie I grew up in is sitting there in the audience. And then when at the very end, one of them stands up and says, I read about you. It could only go bad. This is finally, this is going to be it. And it's going to be terrible. And he said, I mean, a a guy that fits every stereotype I could have had on just on surface appearance said, I wish we had more people like you in Malaysia. And then he, he asked some questions about why I do the work that I do, the kind of things we're talking about. People are people. There are real genuine differences in the world and real conflicts, and they're not easy to dismiss, but never looking, losing track of those differences are because people are different. And that's not a bad thing, but there's a shared component of all of that as well. You know, his kids might come up with a genuine cure for diabetes, not some crappy little AI like I did, an actual cure. It would be insane for me to say, well, I don't understand why you're a religious person. Therefore, I have no interest in anything you could offer the world, um, much less hold it against his kids. And I hope the same is true that people can look at me and say, all right, uh, you know, they run the gamut for, it's cool that there's someone a little colorful in the world to whatever freak. But in the end, what they really value is what I or each of us have brought into the world. And, and it's hard, again, doing hard numbers around these sorts of things because the numbers themselves are biased. And, um, you know, there's famous stories. There was a, an algorithm developed to identify people that should be brought back for follow-ups uh, around, I think, heart disease. And in genuine innocence, I'm not letting anyone off the hook, but in genuine innocence, the people that built the model thought, you know, it's probably a good proxy for the, the actual health risk of the patients how much money got spent on them. 
Now, in retrospect, anyone that's grown up in America understands that we spend a lot more on certain, for example, racial groups than others. Uh, and there are systematic biases here that are well identified. Unfortunately, that's what that algorithm is based on. And in a truly horrifying story, a paper was published in the Science Journal, one of the, the big two, showing that if I'm recalling correctly, it's been a, a little while, you know, thousands of people that should have been brought back for follow-ups weren't and probably died as a result of racial bias in this algorithm, which was completely unintended. It is because of the systematic racial bias in health spending in America, which again, no one's off the hook here, but it understanding you want to solve a problem in the world. Assume you are not nearly as clever as you think you are because you're never smart enough. And assume whatever you've been told is insightful and well-intentioned, but it's just a clue. It's never the whole truth. It's never the story. It's just a clue. Take it as a clue. Go read 30 papers and take them as a clue. Go do your own investigations and take that as a clue. But here's the most important part, doubt yourself. I would say the most important thing I've learned, there's a lot of specific technical things and motivational things, but I genuinely believe this. The most important idea developed in human history is the scientific method. And I mean this at a philosophical level. The world is understandable and measurable, but the only way you can be confident in that understanding is to try to actively prove yourself wrong. And that's the way you have to go through the world, actively kicking all of your tires all of the time. It is so easy, especially if you're even a little bit clever to think, only I know the truth to this problem. I'm right about everything. And to never take the time to step back and realize I haven't solved anything. Even if I am right, I didn't solve it because I couldn't connect my glorious intellect to building something that actually made a difference in people's lives. The guy who founded Newton, who, which no one ought to remember anymore, but it was one of the early companies in AI and education. And uh, my wife and I gave the keynote at South by Southwest about my very first ed tech company and got invited. I mean, what a heady thing. There's 5,000 people in the audience and we got to share stage with uh, the secretary of education for the department of education and a famous actor. And just before we went up, like a couple of days beforehand, the CEO blamed all of the failure of his company's product on the users who are in this case, teachers. You know, essentially it's, it's not our fault, our thing doesn't work. It's their fault because they're incompetent to use our product. Ah, oh, I'm, I'm resisting the F-bomb right now, but um, I was not impressed with this person. But the difference between me and them is paper thin. Uh, the difference between a you know, I, my walk on music for any talk I give is Stevie Wonder, you haven't done nothing. It is a reminder that I've never done anything. That 
you know, that, that satirically or, or ironically, what this problem really needs is a good white woman. Like never fall into that insane trap to think that, that you yourself are the solution. Question yourself harder than everybody else and find that story, find the hidden story. That is the, I know it's pretty soft advice, but that's the starting point for the best advice I have. Yeah. And you went into so many things about like how diverse people's brains are. And there are so many things that we don't understand about the brain. I'm really, really curious to hear what you think is the biggest misconception about how the brain functions and how it's impacting the world. So the basic classic misconception is an easy one. It's a famous one. This idea that we only use whatever the number comes out, 85%, uh, 15% of our brain, 5% of our brain, 1%. We use all of our brain. If you didn't use it, then your biology, your metabolism gets rid of it. So we use all of our brain. In fact, we should use, in a, in a sense, metaphorically, more of our brain. You know, honestly, if I could wave a magic wand and, and like do something that's seemingly small, but would have a profound impact, get people to put 1% more effort into how they think about the world. And I'll be pretty pointed on this. That means less time on TikTok. I'm not calling it out as being a horrible, horrible thing, but it puts your brain to bed. Uh, less time on Instagram less time on reality television, time there is fine. Relaxing occasionally is fine. But one of the fundamentals of a lot of things, but the brain itself is allostasis. We need to be intention. You need find where you feel comfortable and then lift it up a solid 5% above that. So a classic example is that I often give people is take it different route to work every day or school or the classroom. Think about how to get to work. Don't go on automatic or as we neuroscientists would call it, automaticity. Actively engage. Learn a new language later in life. Learn to play a musical instrument. Probably learn to program. I don't know. I don't have research there, but that feels like it's probably close to the same class of things. Do something actually effortful. If it's not effortful, if it's a Red Bull or an Instagram or a brain training game for you to get a quick fix or so, no, actively engage with the world around you. If you want to do it on Instagram, that's great. Instead of giving each picture 500 milliseconds or 200, if we're honest with ourselves, like barely fast enough for your eyes to have even processed anything. Give yourself a challenge. Why do I dislike this photo? Why is this photo not worth my time? And when you come across those amazing ones, what's different about this one? Maybe don't do it all the time, but every now and then, set it out for yourself. I'm actually going to think about Instagram. Uh, that's probably pretty uncommon. And it speaks to the fact that social networks, in some sense, on, on their own, inherently bad. And it's not just the people building. It is us. We're the ones that choose to turn ourselves off and turn ourselves over to them. So don't. Doesn't mean you have to be a stoic. Just 
up your effort by a little bit. So that's, that is one thing about the brain. Here's a more nerdy wonky thing. We often think of the brain as there's a part of your brain that does a specific thing. Neuroscientists frequently think that way as well. And when you call them out, I'm saying this is a very arrogant theoretical neuroscientist, or as is known in the field, a lazy person. Uh, we break fake brains on computers and teach them how to do things so that we don't actually have to get our hands messy. But, you know, you'll go to a talk and a neuroscientist will talk about how they had an electrode in a certain part of parietal lobe or how they, in imaging, they saw a difference between left and right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the processing of certain kind of information. And they say, therefore, your left DLPFC is fundamentally involved in making judgments about morality. That is you as a very limited human being using a linear statistical model to approximate the world, to make a little bit of progress. If you recognize that that's what you're doing, it isn't a terrible thing, except that by doing it, you reinforce in your, your own head that that's actually what's going on. The number of incredibly smart people studying brains I've met that say, yeah, 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 I know the brain isn't doing what my statistical model is doing. And then they get right up on stage and speak as though it is. So instead, it's much more useful. That same philosophy of we don't really know what's going on. And it sounds like I'm being pessimistic or saying like we can't know anything. No, we've learned so much. But what is worth understanding is what's going on in our brains is probably something much, much more like a complex phase space of an enormous giant dynamical model, even than the complexities of the most complicated deep neural network in the world has nothing like what's going on in our brain. My rule of thumb is however complex you think it is, it's more complex than that. And you'll never go wrong. Uh, and I have been wrong and changed. I mentioned the, the gamma stimulation work we're doing in Alzheimer's. If you'd asked me 15 years ago, whether actively intervening on uh, the oscillations of brain activity would change anything meaningful, I would have said, absolutely not. Yeah, they're there. They're kind of epiphenomenal. You know, the, the brain has to do certain things. And of course, it's going to produ produce some spurious regularities. Turns out it has, in many cases, some really profound effects. If you can go in, in fact, this is one of my favorite crazy ones right now, interbrain synchrony. Students whose brains are more synchronized, physically synchronized when they're learning, actually perform better in class. You can discriminate the students that are struggling from those that aren't. Those solving complex collective intelligence problems are much more likely to find solutions if their brains are literally not figuratively, in sync. And so, all right, same thing. If we actively went in with electrical stimulation in this case and forced the brains to be in sync, would people be better at trusting one another and coming up with maximizing the collective intelligence? Well, it turns out they don't let me stick wires into human beings' brains that frequently. 
but someone did this with mice and actually found that the mice became more pro-social when you actively increase the synchrony of activity between their brains. That's terrifying and as cool as hell and points towards things that actually could make it. It's all of those at once, but it's also an amazing story that we could never have told before. So there is one of the more cutting edge things I can offer. Our brains literally sync up and it changes who we are depending on who we are with. I think that's a great way to end off this interview. You have blown my mind with all your insights. I learned so much. I am absolutely thrilled uh, that my ridiculousness has been embraced. Uh, Someday I'll learn my lesson, but apparently it won't be today. Girl Tech Talk is a podcast created by Girl Tech Boss. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.